welcome to the Veterinary Financial Podcast, where we discuss financial freedom and whole life success. I'm Meredith Jones, a veterinarian and financial planner. And I'm Willie Bidot, a lab animal specialist and a money nerd. We are gearing up for the Virtual Veterinary Financial Summit coming up on September 30th and October 1st. Go to vetfinancialsummit.com to learn more. So this is going to be a roundtable episode. For those of you who listen regularly, you know that we typically have a guest interview and we will occasionally do a roundtable on a topic of interest. And Willie, there's a topic that I have a bug in my wig about, and it is comparing job offers with just basing it on the numbers in the contract as their main criteria. And so I'm seeing vets who are, instead of actually comparing the practices themselves and evaluating where they want to work, they're just looking at the numbers in the contract. Yeah, it's crazy because we're seeing a lot of posts about different job positions and whatnot, but it seems like people are not even doing their due diligence. You know, we get a lot of anonymous requests. And frankly, I can't really answer a lot of the questions because there's not enough information. And that's probably because this person has not asked those questions before. You know, it seems like some people do more due diligence to buy something in Amazon than they do for a new contract. (laughs) That's great. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, in the financial world, we talk about not investing in something unless you understand it. And I think it's the same thing with jobs and with comparing job offers. You've got to understand more about the practice to know whether or not it's a place where you want to work or to know which of your two job offers is going to be better for you. Yeah. And again, you know, most people would look at an offer letter, let's say, and first thing they focus is they get tunnel vision and they just look at that number, the salary. And if you're going to private practice or, I mean, GP or emergency, usually there's also a production component to it. So I frankly sometimes don't care about the base salary because you're probably going to meet that production as far as how veterinary medicine is going right now. But one big thing, at least new grads ask for, and it's usually never in the contract or whatever agreement they had, is mentorship. You know, Meredith, what do you think about that? Yeah, and mentorship, it really matters. I had excellent mentorship the first few years I was out of school. I did an internship and then I went on to an emergency practice where I worked with veterinarians who were much more experienced than I was and I had specialists to talk to as well. And it made such a difference throughout my entire career. Certainly, there are some new grads who are focused on mentorship, and it is the main thing that they want. And we had Jason Sumsky come in and talk about that at the last Vet Financial Summit, that that's one of the main things that they want. But I'm not always seeing that with either recent grads and with some new grads and some of the third years who are already getting job offers. And I do think it's something that would be reasonable to actually write into the contract as well. Yeah, you know, I think it's extremely reasonable. And depending on the practice, if you go to a practice with multiple specialists and multiple doctors, then they might have a better structure for mentorship, or at least you can probably find somebody that will be a good mentor. If it's a smaller practice, there are other ways to get mentors, but you certainly want to focus on, hey, my continued education, you know, professional growth does matter. So, hey, can I go do ultrasounds because nobody here is doing them? Can Mm -hmm. I learn about other courses, dental, whatnot? 
And again, these are things that should be reading in your contract because you need time off and the money to do it. And most clinics should be able to provide it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And it's a really good investment for those clinics. So for the practice owners out there, invest in your people and make sure that you're offering enough CE money for your associate, not only to attract them and get them into your practice, but also think of it as an investment for your practice's bottom line as well. Because if you're funding for them to be able to for example, go out to the Viticus Center and actually learn advanced surgery or learn how to do full abdominal ultrasounds, for example. Not only are they probably going to be happier and those associates be kind of stickier in that job, but it's going to be good for your bottom line. It's also just really great for our colleagues, right? It's great for us to be able to work in an environment where the practice cares about our professional growth is just really important. Completely agree. And, you know, before we even hit record, we were talking about the practice environment and how it seemed like people stopped going visiting practices and just are receiving multiple letters and they decide by just looking at a paper. So, you know, it is important to go see this practice. It's important to talk to people in the practices. And Mm -hmm. these are things that you can actually request. I'm sure people will be happy to pay for whatever stipend they need for you to travel to their place and meet you. Because this goes both ways. This is a relationship. We're talking about tech utilization, the practice efficiency, and you're going to spend a lot of time in the clinic. So you better go there and figure out, you know, what is the environment at the clinic? Yeah, exactly. You're going to spend a large, large chunk of your time at work, and it matters a lot who you spend it with. Do you like the people at the practice? Have you spent enough time in the practice to know whether you like the people? Did you only meet the practice owner and practice manager? And if so, why? You know, and that's something else you got to think about. And yeah, did we just get out of the habit during COVID of actually going in and spending enough time in the practices to get to know people and get to know, is this the place where I want to spend a lot of my time? And with COVID, maybe it's just something that we forgot to pass on to our new grads and recent grads. Yeah, it might have been. And another thing that we talked about earlier was you can talk to the clinicians, the associates there, the techs there, but some people that also might be beneficial to talk to are relief veterinarians. If that clinic has some relief veterinarians, they might be very open to talk about the clinic candidly. Mm-hmm. So, you know, again, there's probably some researches that you can do your due diligence and make sure that you're deciding on a place with a good environment. Yeah, other things that you can do for due diligence, and I actually did this for the last job that I accepted that was a clinical job. I went on Glassdoor and I read every review that was there about that group of practices. I went on Google and I looked at, okay, what were their client reviews like? And it can tell you a lot. I mean, you're always going to have the crazy clients that are complaining about silly things. But if you see that they're complaining about customer service a lot, or if you see that they're complaining about medical errors, and it sounds like it might be legit, you know, that's going to be something that you're going to want to take into account when you're making decisions about whether to work there. I contacted just about everyone I knew who had worked in that practice group, 
and had either a phone call with them or chatted online with them and asked questions. And yeah, like you said, the relief vets, they're going to tell you the real deal. So if you can (laughs) get a hold of them, that's gold. Yeah. And again, if you're shy, send an email. There's no issue sending an email. Can you give me a little bit of feedback on the clinic? Mm -hmm. Even ask about production. Uh, Again, people focus on the base salary a lot of times and most people make more because of the production than their base salary. So that shouldn't be the only number that you're looking into. Yeah, absolutely not. And then the other thing is try to get numbers from either the practice owner or practice manager or medical director. Try to get numbers of, okay, the other associates in the practice or the former associates, what did they make when they were there? And see if you can get their numbers. Some practices are going to be more forthcoming with that than others, but it's going to give you a much, much better comparison I know of practice groups that the base salary might only be half of what most of the vets there are actually making. I'm from the ER world, so you know things are a little bit inflated as far as what people can make, but it can be a huge difference what your base salary is versus what your total compensation is. And those should be looked at as two different things, and you should try to get as much information as you can about what your total compensation is going to be. And then also look at the benefits and what those are worth as well. Yeah, and that's a good segue as far as we have already been talking about base salary, production, but there are many other things that could help you while in the practice. I'm seeing a lot of people wanting more days off. Well, that should be in your contract and you should Mm -hmm. put a value to those days off, you know, 10 days, 15 days. That makes a huge difference being able to take two weeks or three weeks off. Benefits as far as 401k, do they have a matching? If you're making $200,000 and they have a 3% match, that's $6,000 that they're giving you on a yearly basis. So again, these are actual tangible numbers that at least for me, I like to put everything on a spreadsheet and make sure that I'm making the right decision. Yeah, absolutely. And then the other thing that can be overlooked and then going back to the total compensation would be how do they utilize their techs? Are they using them at the top of their license? Or is it a situation where you come in and you as a vet, you're having to place all the IV catheters, draw the blood. If you're in the ER environment, you're having to calculate all of the fentanyl CRIs yourself. Well, I could go see another case and let my experienced technician or my well-trained technician go and calculate those things so that I can take care of more patients and be more efficient in the practice. Technology is certainly a, a huge factor as well. We're both old enough, Willie, where we've worked in practices that still use paper records. <laughs> I've worked at practices that have index cards as medical records. It drives me crazy. Oh my. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so definitely a huge difference in practice efficiency there. And then on the other side, I worked in a practice where the clients could check in on their phone and they could approve estimates on their phone. They could check out at the end of the visit on their phone, and that made everything much more efficient. Having 100% electronic records can make a practice much more efficient as well. If you've got a practice that has real and easy-to-use templates for you, that can make a huge difference in the number of cases that you can see. And number of cases that you can see also means 
pets that you can help, number of cases that you can see also is going to affect your production as well. So there's a lot of different pieces of the puzzle there. Yeah, my mind just went wondering when you were saying about the texting and people being able to pay on their phone, because I was like, man, you know what? I take my car to be serviced and everything is communicated through text, which is awesome for me. I take my clothes to the laundry room and everything is communicated. When can I pick up paying everything? Things I don't really have to worry. I don't have to talk to a person. And if I like that as a client, I think some pet owners will also like that as a client. So yeah, those are great points. And going back to vet techs and the environment, so the people mm-hmm. that you're working with, you're spending a lot of time in the practice. How much time should also be in the contract? <laughs> That's something <laughs> that I love to talk about because I see a lot of contracts and a lot of people want to work now four days a week. Awesome. But if you're working four days a week, 10 hours, just 40 hours, similar as to working five days, eight hours. So again, you're working the pretty much the same amount. Of course, some clinics expect you to stay longer, which shouldn't be appropriate. But putting those details in the contract is really important. You know, days off. I hate it when I see one week off. Well, I don't know what a week is because you work three, four days and your shifts are weird. So I'm not understanding what a week is. Because you're saying that your schedule is three shifts, 12 hours a week. Does that mean that you just don't work that week and they'll pay you for the three shifts? Again, those are details that I ask them in the contract and I'm not the one signing it. So certainly you should be asking that question. Mm -hmm. That's another thing to ask when you're doing that due diligence. Ask the associate vets who have worked there or the relief vets who have worked there. What was your paperwork time like? So is it a practice that they've got enough space between appointments where you're able to do your records in real time? Or is it a practice where like an emergency practice where I used to work where you're just rocking, seeing cases the entire time and then you're staying hours afterward, potentially having to do charts and potentially paper charts? So there's a lot of different ways that we can practice and get paperwork done. And that can be a huge stress and a huge strain if it's something that is not taken care of. And it's also just something to know about so that you know what you're getting into. So if you're a person who is okay, if once in a while they have to stay an hour or two and get paperwork done, okay, that's fine. But get that information so that you know what to expect. Yeah, that reminded me of a contract I saw, I think it was last week or two weeks ago. The contract stated this person was going to work from eight to five, for five days a week, technically 40 hours because there was an hour lunch break. I told this person, I don't think you want to work five days a week. You probably want to work four and work four tens. And this person came back to me and said, but they don't even open from eight to six, eight to seven. <laughs> and that's where I was like, well, you know, you got to ask if this lunchtime is actually blocked lunchtime, because I'm mm-hmm. sure you're going to be seeing appointments on the lunchtime. I personally don't like to have a lunchtime because I feel like you're going to see appointments anyway, you know, ask for 15 minutes and paid 15 minutes for lunch. And then are you really leaving at 5 p.m.? Isn't the last appointment at 4.45? You're yeah. not leaving at 5 p.m. ever. So again, set realistic expectations as far as, you know, rather work eight to six, let's say no breaks. And you know that they end up five seeing appointments and you can stay there and make sure that your records are completed. You don't take that work home. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, that's a really, really good point. Yeah. And then let's talk about kind of counter arguments that I get to a lot of these things. Okay, so the main counter argument, and we both are moderators on the Debt Free Vets group. So that's why we see these things. Because I've gone in and said, hey, are you comparing the practices? And they'll say, well, the contract is something that's known. So they've got a legal obligation that they have to fulfill. But any of this other stuff is just fuzzy stuff, you know, and it's not a tangible thing. It's an intangible, unknown thing. And people can make easy excuses not to actually follow through on the mentorship or the schedule that they said you were going to have as far as the client schedule, that sort of thing. And so, yeah, I mean, it's something that's not guaranteed, but at least spending enough time in the practices that you're interested in and talking to those associates and talking to the folks who work there and getting a little bit more information about what the practice is actually like. Shadowing a busy shift. So I saw this in emergency where someone would come in for an interview and, okay, what is the easiest time to do an interview for an ER doctor? It's probably going to be a Wednesday morning when it's dead, right? (laughs) So, okay, fine. Come in for your interview, but come back on a Saturday night or a Sunday so you can see what it's really like. What is the staffing like during that time frame? And how stressed are the doctors? Are they okay and everything's going smoothly? Or is shit literally hitting the fan? If you are looking at a small animal GP job, shadow them on a busier day. So you might come in on just, you know, a regular whatever Tuesday morning when it's a regular day, but it might be nice to see what it's like on Saturday morning when they're getting a lot of calls and people are asking to be squeezed in? And then what do they do with the folks who are asking to be squeezed in? Get to know those details and make sure that you're comfortable with what the answers are to those questions. Yep. So yeah, going back to the contract, there's a legal agreement and you have to sign it. There are things in the contract that you should look into and negotiate. One of those I feel like it's a big subject right now in veterinary medicine. Oh, yeah. Which is non hot topic, which <laughs> is non competes. And, you know, most people would say, oh, it has to be in the contract. It doesn't have to be. There are some states where you can't enforce non compete, so you shouldn't be even seeing a non compete in those states. But non compete can be extremely detrimental to your life completely. You know, if you move to a place that you really like and you sign this non-compete, that is, let's say, 25 miles, which I've seen quite a few of 25 miles, that is extremely detrimental. That means that you're going to have to drive 25 miles away. Well, it's actually not even driving because it's a, a radius. So you might actually have to drive 40 miles away to find another practice. You know, recently I was negotiating a contract with a specialist and that person did a great due diligence as far as If I were to quit this job, the closest clinic that I'm willing to work at is at this radius. So my Mm -hmm. radius needs to be less. I was like, wow, that is great. So you know that you're willing to work at these two practices, but you like this one more. But either way, you're protecting yourself by saying anything happens, I would jump to this other one. And and that's that's great. Again, doing your due diligence. Mm hmm. That's really smart to get that granular with it and say, Mm -hmm. okay, what is my backup plan going to be? 
hopefully you like the job that you're choosing, but just knowing, okay, if something changes there and I don't actually like it or I want to move on to something else several years from now, what does that look like for me? Am I having to make a hard decision to uproot my family and completely move at that point? Or are there changes that can be made to the contract on the front end to make all of that easier? And then the other thing I see, and I get a bug in my wig about this when I see it too, (laughs) where (laughs) they'll say, okay, I've got these two offers. And I mean, they might even be the same base salary. They might be $10,000 off or whatever, and they're both production offers. And they'll say, otherwise, the practices are exactly the same. The same. <laughs> the same, Willie. The same. How is that possible? <laughs> it is not possible. I, I don't, I, I mean, I, I don't know if they're sharing technicians and assistants and, you know, they're sharing, sharing practice manager, you know, but seriously, the people at these practices are not the same, right? On ER, sometimes I would have just a different crew, right? At the same practice, mm-hmm. I could go into a shift at night and I could say, okay, Veronica was one of our best technicians. I could come in and like, okay, Veronica's here. This and that assistant are here. Everybody's experienced. I know I'm going to be okay. No matter what happens, 25 cases come in, we're going to be okay, right? And then I might have another shift where I come in on a Saturday and everybody there is green. Everybody's fresh tech just out of school, brand new assistant, never worked anywhere else before. And that shift could look very different. And so if that can happen at the same practice, don't tell me that these two practices are the same. Yeah. Again, it's a matter of doing your due diligence. And you know, you grab a piece of paper or grab two pieces of paper in this instance, and you compare them and say, oh, they look similar. They're the same. Are you kidding me? Like, that's like, <laughs> I don't know, comparing two cities that you have heard are the same. It's like, no, they're not the same. They're in completely different locations. So certainly that's important. You know, again, going back, we're focusing a lot on the due diligence. For me, I'm passionate about the contracts. I know Meredith is really passionate about the environment of the clinic. Yeah. What else do you have, Willie, for contracts that you want to go through? You know, compensation, again, we keep talking about that piece of paper. And when I'm referring to that, it's usually the offer letter, because that's the first thing that you receive. And, and they, sh- they put a few numbers. It's just a one pager kind of document. It should be detailed enough for you to understand what exactly they're expecting from you. Most of the time, they don't really put the benefits package in that document. But if it's a big enough company or a big enough practice, the HR department should have an employee packet. And they tend to be okay with just sending you the packet so that you know, you know, what's the medical insurance they offer, if there's a match for 401k, what other accounts, you know, some clinics offer free vet services for their employees or discounted. And again, these things can make a huge difference financially and personally as well. So again, the whole compensation package is extremely important. Yeah, absolutely. And and even, and we have a blog that you had written last year, Willie, that we can put in the show notes showing how to compare job offers and actually assigning a number to all of your PTO days. And 
assigning a number to all of the benefits really and then side by side comparing the offers because even when you are just looking at the numbers what it looks like on the surface might not actually be it might not actually be the same once you get that granular with it and compare it um and and gosh when you compare those side by side the base salary really doesn't matter as much uh, once you start looking at the benefits packages as well and it really opened my mind to kind of compare jobs when I moved from a low cost of living area to a high cost of living area where, okay, you know, I'm going to move. I certainly need a bump in my salary so I can sustain my lifestyle in this new location. But what else do I need? Mm-hmm. And I underestimated that number completely <laughs> knowing what I know right now. But I felt like I did a little bit of due diligence. And again, I lowballed it. So certainly, you know, you have to pay attention to these things. Other things in the contract now, we're talking about moving. You can ask for relocation money. If they give you $1,000, that's $1,000 less from your pocket. Similar to other stipends like CE and whatnot. Like, do you really think this day and age, $2,000 is going to give you enough money to go to a conference? The registration is already five, dollars $600. Flights, hotels, you're going to be paying out of pocket some things. Mm-hmm. You know, you want a cushion on it. And we talked about taking other courses. You know, if you're taking an ultrasound wet lab, that's going to be $1,000 in most places. Mm -hmm. So again, you want to develop as a professional and you have to ask for this money. And this is just right off for most clinics. Yeah, absolutely. And CE is really important. Cost of living calculators. I don't know if you've got a recommendation for those, for one that has worked well. I've used multiple. NerdWallet has a good one. I feel like NerdWallet has good information on it. So I usually tend to go straight to that one. Unfortunately, it only covers like big cities most of the time. So in my example, when I moved from Gainesville to Anaheim, Orange County was in the list, which is where Anaheim is, but Gainesville was not. So I had to choose, you know, a city like Orlando or Jacksonville to compare, which is not really that much comparable. But again, I use multiple, again, doing your due diligence. Like if you were going to buy something on Amazon, you're going to read multiple reviews. That's the same thing as relocation, you know, make sure you look at different numbers. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And going back to employee experience and something else to make sure you ask about, a lot of people forget to ask what the schedule is like and actually look at it on the computer. Are they routinely double booking? And don't just look at the day that you come in for the interview that they probably didn't double book. Um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Ask to see a couple weeks back. And what did that look like? How many emergencies did they squeeze in? I'm not saying they should never squeeze in an emergency, but what does that look like? And is it something that is acceptable for you? And so taking a look at that, We recently had Ivan Zach on the podcast and he was talking about his burnout study and scheduling was one of the biggest stressors for veterinarians and veterinary staff as well. That's a great point. You know, I mentioned earlier about is lunch blocked? Again, there's a computer that probably tells you if lunch is blocked. So look at all the associates and see if lunch is actually blocked at that clinic. That's a great point. Another thing that Meredith and I have a lot of conversations about this are sign-on bonuses. Another very popular thing in veterinary medicine nowadays. Meredith, what are good things and bad things about sign-on bonuses? Yeah, so it's a good one to talk about because 
In some ways, I feel like sign-on bonuses have become the new non-compete because they've become the new thing that is now tying some veterinarians to the practice because they got either a big or sometimes even a smaller sign-on bonus and they went out and spent it right away. And then a few months in, they realize, oh gosh, I don't like this job as much as I thought, or I was getting good mentorship for the first month and now I'm not. And they decide that they don't like it and then they don't feel like they can leave because if they left, they would have to pay back the sign-on bonus. And sometimes they'd have to actually pay back more than what they actually received because of the tax implications with the sign-on bonus. Yep. And that's a great point. The whole, they're becoming the new non-compete because again, yeah, there's a lot of push to remove non-competes, but companies are figuring out, okay, I'm going to remove the non-compete to get on this wave, but I'm going to give somebody $100,000 and they have to work for me for three years. And if they don't work for me in three years, they'll have to pay back. And I know that they probably spent the money once they received it. So they're going to have to stay at my clinic for three years just because of that issue. And mm-hmm. you made a good point. If you receive that sign-on bonus year X, you have to pay taxes on that year X. And then let's say, you know, you received the bonus in 2022, you pay taxes in 2022. It was already tax day, what, two weeks ago? And now you're not enjoying your job. You kind of want to quit. Well, you already paid taxes on that money. So let's say that $100,000 became $80,000 really quick. And you already spent that money. So now you have to give back to this clinic $100,000. Are you going to go back to the IRS and say, you know what? I never got that money. I got to give it back. That's going to be such a hassle, which is doable, but it's such a hassle. So again, you know, things like, Sign-on bonus being prorated is really important, meaning that if you get that example, you know, $100,000 for three years is $33,000 a year. And, you know, if you were to quit, then you own them whatever is left out of the period that is left. So prorated is good. Certainly something that you should be seeing with your non-compete. Or you can also, for tax purposes, I like breaking down the sign-on bonus. So, hey, yeah, you're going to give me $100,000. I would like forty now. And then 30 and 30 on the next two years. I feel like that's completely fine. Yeah, absolutely. With getting the sign on bonus prorated so that it's something that you're not having to pay as much back if you did work there a significant amount of time. And then the other thing that some vets are overlooking is okay, there's a difference between the notice that you're expected to give in the contract and the sign on bonus. And so in most contracts, the vast majority of vets live in at-will states. And so that means that you can leave your job whenever you want. And it also means they can fire you whenever they want to. And so, of course, it's not a common occurrence these days. But if you're in an at-will state, you can leave. So just because you have a sign-on bonus, or even if you don't have a sign-on bonus, just because you sign a contract that says, okay, I'm going to work here through 2024, still doesn't mean that you have to stay through 2024. If you have in your contract a amount of time that you are expected to give notice before you leave the job, then that's an at-will contract. 
And so whatever that expectation is, whether it's a month, two months, whatever, that you're expected to give for a notice for that job, that's the amount of time that they expect you to tell them, okay, yeah, I'm going to leave in a month or two, or sometimes it's three months. You can leave a job (laughs) if you're not happy with it. You don't have to stay until the end of a particular contract. It's not something where it's like, oh, I have to leave my job in December because my contract ends in December. And I think a lot of people overlook that. I completely agree. And for a new grad, you know, somebody telling you that you're going to get a, your first paycheck is going to be of $100,000. That is awesome. That could help you immensely. But you also have to think, if they're offering $100,000, there might be an issue with this practice. So again, do your due diligence and visit the practice (laughs) and talk to people. Yeah, there's gonna be a reason, Mm -hmm. okay? This is a new thing. A couple years ago, it was great if you were getting a $20,000 signing bonus. And now people are getting 100, sometimes there's... Well, the $200,000 signing bonuses are often for five years of work, but people are getting these huge sign-on bonuses. And yeah, there's a reason for it. And the reason is the labor shortage, one. Another reason is that some practices, if they don't have something as a big carrot to get somebody in, they're going to have to shut it down. Another thing that is in play, especially with all of the consolidation that's happening with private equity becoming more and more of a thing in veterinary medicine, more of those types of investments, the more vets that a practice has, the more they can sell a practice for. And so if they're able to recruit by having these large sign-on bonuses, then they're able to ultimately sell the practice for more money. And it doesn't mean that you should never accept a sign-on bonus. We're not saying that at all, but we're saying some of those higher sign-on bonuses, often there's a reason. Maybe they're in a rural area, and so they're just having a hard time even keeping the doors open. Maybe the culture at the practice is a problem. Maybe it's a toxic culture. Maybe that is the reason that they're having trouble finding or keeping an associate in the practice. So There can be a lot of different components to that. Yeah. And again, back to culture, if you see a sign-on bonus of, let's say, $10,000, $20,000 in an offer, you know, don't count that clinic out. You know, it might be a Mm -hmm. privately owned practice. They, frankly, a lot of them can't give you $100,000, but they can offer you so much more than that $100,000. So again, don't scrap that offer letter because the sign-on bonus doesn't compare because there might be so many benefits. And I wanted to go back with salary. And a confusing term is production. You know, what is production? And we have talked about this before in the podcast. You know, people don't really know even the term of how they're getting paid. But most of the time is you have a base salary plus production. So if you cover your base salary with your production and then some, then you get that some amount. But there's also negatives to that, which is a negative accrual. Meredith, what is a negative accrual? Negative accrual, yeah. And there are some misconceptions about this. I'm going to describe what the vast, vast majority of the time negative accrual means. And so what that is, is, for example, if you don't produce as much as you should, in quotes, should have produced in order to meet your base salary, 
in a given period of time. So that could be a month, that could be over a quarter, it just depends on how it is done in the contract. If you don't produce enough in a period of time, it means that not only do you not get a production bonus, you still get your base salary, you always get that, but you don't get a production bonus. And before you can in the future get a production bonus, you have to make up for that lost production. So you can be what we used to call in the hole, because uh, I, I used to work in a practice that had negative accrual. And I graduated back in 2008, where negative accrual was built into a lot of contracts. And I, I'm so happy that it's becoming a less common thing, but it used to be very, very common. So you're in the hole. And so what happens is, okay, Often you are effectively punished for going on vacation because unless there's stipulations in the contract that say, okay, we're counting it a different way, often with a negative accrual contract, that's not the case. And so what they'll say is, okay, when you go on vacation, you produce less for the hospital. So the practice didn't make that income while you were out. And so you have to make up for that lost income before you will get your production bonus. One of the misconceptions that's out there that it's extremely, extremely rare for it to be the case that you would have to write a check to the practice and actually physically owe them money. I've heard of that maybe one or two times ever. So most of the time, even if you're on negative cruel, there's a common misconception that, oh, you're going to owe the practice money. Most of the time, that's not the case. It's just more of being in the hole and never getting a production bonus. So again, understand your production and, you know, talking about negative accrual, but overall, if production doesn't have negative accrual, understand when is this production being paid? When does it go to zero? It's usually monthly, quarterly, biannual, yearly. So even that is mm -hmm. important to understand because like Meredith mentioned, you might be penalized for taking vacation on a certain period because you weren't there and you weren't producing. Yeah, and we've got a blog that's about production that I'll also link to in the show notes as well. And it goes into detail and has examples of what production looks like with and without negative accrual, and then also what production would look like on a monthly and quarterly basis. And for the associate, the best way to do production would be to have no negative accrual and get production on a monthly basis so that your production gets basically reset every month. So if you have a month where you're sick or you go on vacation, then it's not going to be counted against you. There are also some contracts where you can get it written in as, okay, if you're on vacation, that it's counted as a true paid time off versus being what Dave Nickel referred to this at the summit as allowed time off, <laughs> <laughs> which is what a lot of uh, the older contracts actually had. Yeah, and it is so important to understand, of course, the base salary, the production, and we have talked about compensation. And we keep saying all these questions that you might have about contract, salary, and whatnot. We have them proudly answered in the vetfinancialsummit.com website where we create good blogs giving this information out. But we still see a lot of these questions being posted in the debt-free vets and in other platforms where people are just asking these questions back to back to back. So 
you know, clearly it's getting more complicated since the veterinary medicine market is so hot right now. Main thing, uh, at least my take-home message is do not have tunnel vision. Do your due diligence. And I feel like you should focus more on sustainability. And is this the right job for me, the right place, the right culture for me, rather than I'm getting paid well enough to not worry about those things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that's a good closing point is that it is possible to have a job that is sustainable and where you're able to do the things that you want to do in life and financially. And we do also have the Virtual Vet Financial Summit coming up on September 30th and October 1st. And among the other personal finance and practice finance, practice management sessions, we are going to have panels where we talk about compensation and also where we talk about contract pitfalls as well. If you like this roundtable episodes, please let us know. We would really appreciate your feedback. You can email us at leadership at financialsummit.com and you know we'll be happy to continue doing them. All right. And we'll put that email address in the show notes as well. If you liked this episode, click the follow or subscribe button. Until next time, take care and continue your path to financial success. The information provided in this podcast is for informational purposes only. It should not be considered legal or financial advice. Consult with a legal or financial professional before making any investment decisions.